to the weekly podcast of Science and the City, the public gateway to the New York Academy of Sciences, online at scienceandthecity.org. Today is Friday, October 17th, 2008. I'm Elena Reiki. Winning a presidential election has a lot to do with strategy, and a strategy that might have a future rooted in science. The emerging field of political neuroscience is one that hopes to discover the brain processes behind why we vote the way we do. NYU scientists John Jost, David Amodio, and Liz Phelps have all done research in this field and came together at a joint Science in the City and NYU event last month. Today, we look at some of their research, learn what's been discovered about the science behind political ideology, and hear where neuroscience hopes to take the field of politics next. So I'd like to start with personality. And I would like to uh, invite each of you to take out a piece of paper, uh, if you wouldn't mind, and a, a, a pen or a pencil. And what It's I'd a Wednesday like night at NYU, and psychologist John Jost stands before a room full of people who've come to hear about the science behind elections. One of the things Joe studies are the dispositional and situational factors that increase the likelihood of people gravitating to one political party or the other. But tonight, before Joe gets to politics, he gives the audience a personality test. Okay, is everyone finished? Yeah, okay. Um, what you've just taken is a short, and especially given its brevity, a surprisingly reliable and valid measure of the big five or five-factor model of personality. And this uh, big five model of personality is, over the last several decades, been one of the most strongly supported taxonomies for understanding basic personality dimensions. In particular, personality researchers over the last few decades have been able to demonstrate across different languages and uh, different cultural contexts as well, to an impressive extent, really, that people's personality judgments, both of themselves and of other people, can be economically and fairly exhaustively understood in terms of these five major dimensions, which spell out the acronym OCEAN. OCEAN stands for openness, conscientiousness, extroversion, agreeableness, and neuroticism, which Joe says is essentially a measure of emotional stability. Participants rate themselves on each of the characteristics. For instance, if you're very comfortable dealing with new situations and change, you're likely to be considered more open. From this basic test, Joe says he can begin to identify basic differences between people who tend to gravitate to the left of the political scale and people who tend to gravitate to the right. Studies show that, in fact, the single biggest personality difference, at least understood in terms of this Big Five framework, between liberals and conservatives is with respect to this dimension of openness to new experiences. So specifically, liberals score higher on every measure and every facet, in fact, of openness, including curiosity, creativity, fantasy life, sensation-seeking, stimulus-seeking, and valuing diversity and novelty for its own sake. Conversely, conservatives tend to score higher on certain facets of conscientiousness, especially needs for order, discipline, achievement, striving, and rule following. And there are no differences, as I mentioned, on the other three dimensions, so it's not quite as if liberals and conservatives are from different planets, but there are some telling differences. Differences, says Jost, that are often expressed in what he calls behavioral residue, subconscious tendencies that show levels of our openness and conscientiousness. In one study, Dana Carney, Sam, and I 
hypothesize that these personality differences between liberals and conservatives would leave behind some behavioral residue. Uh, there would be differences in the actual physical spaces uh, that they occupy, so that independent observers who were completely unaware of the political orientation of the room's inhabitants might pick up on room cues that would be associated with openness and conscientiousness. So some very generous and trusting employees and college students allowed us access to their bedrooms and offices and so on, and they allowed three people to go in and snoop in these spaces uh, and to inspect them for personality cues. And we don't have time to go into all the results that we found, so I'll just briefly focus on a few of the findings. Okay, first, can you spot the conservative office? (laughs) Conservative rooms uh, tended to be cleaner, Uh, more brightly lit, better organized, less cluttered, and also more conventional and ordinary in terms of choice of decoration, uh, and so on. Furthermore, conservatives' bedrooms were also more likely than liberals' bedrooms to contain organizational and cleaning supplies, uh, (laughs) including calendars, postage stamps, ironing boards, laundry baskets, and so on. And conservatives' rooms were rated by independent coders, again, who were unaware of the political orientation of the inhabitants as better organized and tidier uh, in general. Liberals' rooms, on the other hand, were marked by more clutter, including more CDs, a greater variety of CDs, a greater variety of books, and more color in the room uh, in general. So we see both more openness and less conscientiousness in liberals' rooms, consistent, again, with the self-report data. Personality can only go so far to explaining our ideological preferences. So, in 2003, Jost and a team of scientists looked at a bigger picture. My colleagues and I conducted a quantitative or meta-analytic review of all the studies that we could find that had investigated cognitive and motivational style differences underlying political orientation. So we found 88 studies that had been conducted over a 44-year period from 1958 to 2002, including data on over 22,000 individual research participants or cases and people coming from 12 different countries. And in that article, we proposed a theory that ended up being a bit more controversial than we had anticipated, at least controversial among right-wing bloggers who, based on the evidence, didn't seem to actually have read the article, but it bothered them a lot. But the theory has received a significant amount of support over the last uh, five years, and so I'll just tell you a bit about that. In short, we argued... Based on uh, historical and and philosophical sources, part going back to 1789 and whether people supported or opposed the French Revolution, going back to this history of thinking about what the differences are between left and right, and actually the terms left and right originate as political metaphors based upon seating arrangements in the French parliament at the time of the French Revolution with the people on the right who supported the ancient regime, people on the left supporting the revolutionaries. So if you take this as context and you try to think about you know, what are the fundamental differences between left and right philosophically, I think it makes sense to think about conservative ideology differing from liberal ideology in two major ways. First, in its general preference for stability and social order over social change. And second, in its relative acceptance of social and economic forms of inequality or hierarchy as natural and or legitimate. So we hypothesized that these conservative preferences for stability and hierarchy would be enhanced whenever psychological needs to reduce uncertainty and threat are heightened for either dispositional or situational reasons. And this is because stability and hierarchy, we think, inherently provide reassurance and structure, 
Whereas social change and equality in, in social systems, especially large social systems like society as a whole, but even small social systems like the family, imply greater unpredictability and uh, at times even chaos. And people may be psychologically unwilling or unable to take on that unpredictability when they're feeling threatened or experiencing aversive levels of uncertainty. So it follows from this general line of reasoning that the appeal of conservatism should be enhanced whenever needs to reduce uncertainty and threat are relatively high. And conversely, the appeal of liberalism should be increased whenever needs to reduce uncertainty and threat are relatively low. So the data from the meta-analysis were quite consistent with this theory. That is aggregating, again, across dozens of studies carried out by many different research teams in different countries. The motivation to reduce uncertainty was indeed correlated with political orientation. So specifically, intolerance of ambiguity and stronger personal needs for order, structure, certainty, and closure were positively associated with uh, conservatism or negatively associated with liberalism. Integrative complexity, openness to new experiences, and tolerance for uncertainty were all positively associated with liberalism or negatively associated with conservatism. Similarly, the data revealed that greater fear of threat and loss, death anxiety, and exposure to system threat were all positively associated with conservatism, and low self-esteem was very weakly uh, associated with conservatism, although that effect seems to come and go through different uh, periods of time. Where do we think these differences might come from? Well, it's been suggested that there may actually be a genetic component. So specifically, studies comparing the social and political attitudes of monozygotic and dizygotic twins who were reared apart reveal that identical twins have more similar attitudes than same-sex fraternal twins. It's currently estimated that as much as 40 to 50% of the statistical variance in political orientation may be heritable through these twin studies. This does not mean, however, that there is a gene for political orientation per se. A more likely explanation, much more likely explanation, it seems to me, is that there are basic cognitive and motivational predispositions, including orientations toward uncertainty and threat. These predispositions have a heritable component. What about the other 50% or more of the statistical variability in political orientation? Well, several environmental factors have been proposed. And, of course, gene-environment interactions are really the focus of, of most contemporary behavioral genetics. It's not nature or nurture. It's pretty clearly nature and nurture. There's an uh, old research literature going back to the 1950s suggesting that there are differences between liberal and conservative parenting styles, especially with respect to issues of discipline and punishment. And similarly, interpersonal attachment styles that are learned in childhood do seem to predict political orientation in adulthood. Factors uh, such as education and travel are known to increase openness, tolerance, support for diversity, egalitarianism, and political liberalism. And finally, there seem to be effects of the immediate situation that can bring about more temporary or short-lived changes in political attitudes and preferences, again, by affecting psychological needs concerning the reduction of uncertainty and threat. For instance, researchers who study what they call terror management theory have shown that either subliminal or superliminal primes that remind people of death, terrorism and 9-11 and related stimuli, simply by flashing words quickly on a computer screen or by asking people to think about or write about uh, any of these topics, cause both liberals and conservatives to increase their levels uh, of, su of support for President Bush and his conservative policies. David Amodio is an assistant professor of psychology at NYU. 
He conducts brain research on how liberals and conservatives may handle mental conflict differently, among other things. Amodio used Joe's 2003 study to build on the theory that there might be differences between the way liberals and conservatives' brains are able to process information. So our question had to do with ideology in the brain. Here we're talking about conservative and liberal ideologies, and these are very broadly construed. Obviously, the terms have meant different things across history and cultures somewhat, but we're talking about the broad strokes of conservatism, liberalism, just as John described them. And our question was, is ideology related to fundamental ways in which our minds and our brains deal with information. And the idea, according to Jost and his colleagues' work, was that maybe compared with conservatives, liberals are more adept at processing information that's new and unexpected. And that was our basic hypothesis. So you're confronted with something you didn't quite expect. Maybe it's a little, there are pros and cons or um, some complexities. Maybe that there's variability in, in the cognitive machinery that deals with that. So Amodio developed an experiment to test how and what parts of the brain process conflicting information, and not necessarily information with a political twist. So here's what we did. Our question was basically whether that brain process for detecting changes and dealing with changes in incoming information is related to ideology. And that's super basic. You know, that has nothing to do with politics per se, but it could be that that process is what gets expressed to some extent in these broad... Um, ideologies that John was talking about. So this study was pretty straightforward. We had 43 participants in this study at UCLA and NYU, pretty large for a neuroimaging study, just to FYI. And what we did in the study was first measured people's political attitudes. This is just a brief overview, and I'll tell you a little more about the measures then. Then they completed a task that we call the go-no-go task. The name is completely descriptive, and um, I'll also show you what that is, but it's an extremely basic measure of self-regulation and control. And it essentially tests your ability to respond to changing information as it pertains to your, your actions. And then we uh, measured brain activity as people did this. Here we used electroencephalography, EEG. A lot of you are probably familiar with that term. And I'll show you how we used that also. So let me show you this measure of political attitudes. Remember, this was, these were college students, so a lot of them, I think, were politically oriented. But nevertheless, I like the wording. It says, we hear a lot of talk these days about liberals and conservatives. Where on the following scale of political orientation would you place yourself? And this is a very straightforward scale. It goes from extremely liberal to moderately to neither, to moderately conservative to extremely conservative. And all they have to do is say, this is me. Circle it. This is the most face-valid type of measure for asking about political orientation. It's also highly predictive of actual voting behavior. So it's got, it's got predictive validity as well. We were careful, though, when people came into the study. We didn't want them to think that this was going to be about politics. So we had this measure embedded within a bunch of other questionnaires. So they come in, they sit down, fill out um, personality things, how do you feel about your relationships, stuff like that. And then we, we kind of slip this in, and they have no idea that the study is about politics. Then we bring them into the EEG room, attach all these electrodes. They have an electrode cap. They sit at a computer. This is called the go-no-go task. It's very simple. They see several trials, which is essentially a stimulus coming up on the computer screen. They see 500 trials, and there are only two types of trials on the go-no-go task. Here we used M's and W's, and we chose these on the basis of past research because they're essentially inverted letters. So it's a nice uh, experimental control. Every time one of these came up, if they saw, in, in, in some cases, an M was considered to be the go trial. And that came up 80% of the time across 500 trials, and it came up quickly. And the, the task was, if you see the go stimulus, the M, hit the space bar. It comes up only for 100 milliseconds. It's like a brief flash. 
and they have to respond within 500 milliseconds. So the pace is really quick. So now imagine you're sitting there 500 times. You've got to hit a button for 80% of those every time that M comes up. It gets you into this habitual pattern. You know, something flashes, press the space bar. And it doesn't take long for that habit to form. However, 20% of the time, we have a different letter that comes up on the screen. And that's why we call it the no-go signal, because when you see that letter, you have to do nothing. Right? So you get in this habitual pattern to hit that space bar. Every now and then, you see a different stimulus, and you have to stop yourself. And it's hard. People make a lot of mistakes on it. And this is a basic way of seeing how quickly and responsive are people to changes in information that says they need to do something different and break out of their routine. I will point out, though, we had half the subjects do this task so that an M was the one that they always had to keep pressing to, and when they saw the W, they stopped. The other half of the, of the subjects did it opposite. So they always pressed the button when they saw Ws and stopped when they saw the M. I designed this task before I thought of including that political attitudes measure, I've got to say. And when this came out, the press that I saw had a lot of creative uh, alternative explanations, and one was that maybe the W re- represented George W. Bush. And uh, I wish I'd thought of that beforehand. Some others have come up with creative ones, Mac versus Windows. <laughs> anyway, because we counterbalanced that, that was our way of ensuring that that letter really didn't have any semantic significance in the task. Okay, so it's totally arbitrary. So what exactly were the results of Amodia's experiment? So on Go trials, remember, that's when they were kind of in this habit of always pressing the button. People always got that right. You, you pretty much don't mess that one up ever. All the action was in these no-go trials. When that no-go stimulus came up, the question is, were you able to stop in time? And that was really what our test was. So on the bottom, we're showing to the left side is more liberal, to the right side is more conservative. All this shows is when people were di- making those go responses, there was no, no difference between liberals and conservatives. They always look the same. What was interesting was that just in their behavior, and I'll show you the brain stuff in a second, people who rated themselves as more liberal had a tendency to be more accurate in catching themselves on those no-go trials. People who were more conservative made mistakes more often. So when they were supposed to stop, they had trouble doing it. There's nothing political about this task, so that's, that's just what we found. Now let me just show you how we measured this in the brain, getting back to that part of the brain I told you that was really important for detecting these discrepancies in what you're doing. So this is just um, somebody's fake skull with um, little electrodes on it that you can see. And while they did this task, we measured EEG continuously. And this, you don't, don't expect you to make any sense out of this, but this is what raw EEG signal looks like. What we did in order to quantify the brain activity related to the specific responses, like when they had to respond to the no-go stimulus, what we were able to do is every time that no-go stimulus came up, we took that little chunk of brain activity, maybe about a a second's worth, for every trial. And this just illustrates how we might take all these different little chunks of brain activity related to a no-go response. We could average that all together and get a meaningful signal that can tell us something about activity of that particular brain region that, I was, that I'm talking about, the anterior cingulate. Normally, this method isn't, of EEG isn't very good for knowing exactly where stuff comes from in the brain, but for this particular waveform, it is very good. Through certain processing, pull out a waveform, which is an index of actual neural firing coming you know, from the neurons, through the scalp, the skull, the scalp, all of that stuff in real time, and then through some more processing, localize that to a part of the brain. This, the wave that we were looking at localizes right to that dorsal anterior cingulate, part of the brain that's important for detecting discrepancies and then eliciting a response to them. And here are the results of our study. This is just a scatter plot where, again, on the x-axis, um, I have plotted more liberal folks are represented more to the left, 
more conservative folks to the right. And again, this is all correlation. It looks at the spectrum. It does, we never try to split people up into one group or another. Um, there are a lot of reasons why we wouldn't want to do that. So this is just the spectrum. And along the y-axis is the amount of brain activity in that ERP that's representing that anterior cingulate, the part of the brain that is, seems to be um, monitoring for conflicts. And there was a pretty strong linear relationship. So people who were stronger in liberalism had much more activity in that part of the brain when they need to deal with this unexpected stimulus, and they dealt with it accurately. Um, conservatives tend to have less activity here, and that was also related to these, these brain measures predicted their behavior. So all of this was correlated. Amodia's research used EEG monitoring, but a more common tool for studying the brain is functional brain imaging. Liz Phelps is a professor of psychology and neuroscience at NYU. She explains how functional brain imaging works. Most of the time when you see an article on the human brain, what you see is a pretty colored picture with blobs on it, and they've used a tool like this, which is functional brain imaging, and fMRI in particular. So first I'm going to tell you what this tool is. The first paper published using this technique was published in 1991, so let me tell you about this technique. It's the primary technique we use to study the human brain today. And um, it's called functional magnetic resonance imaging. You use a regular MRI machine. This is the one that's in the psychology department at New York University. New York University trying to lead the way in here actually has one j- devoted just to psychological research. It's just like the MRI machine you would be in in a hospital, but we can measure different signals with this machine. And so we can measure anatomy, which is what usually happens when you go into the hospital and you see a picture of your anatomy, whether it's your brain or your knee or anything else. But we can also measure an indication of blood flow in the human brain. We call this the blood oxygenation level dependent signal. What we think is that this signal follows neuronal activity. So the way this research works is that I give you something to do while you're sitting in an MRI scanner, and I then measure this signal, and I look to see, you know, so I give you, for instance, I show you images of politicians, let's say, ask you to make make choices, it doesn't really matter, but I give you something to do. I then look to see where I see differences in this signal, and then I compare the images. And this signal then is correlated with the stimuli of the behavior presented and always compared to a baseline. So one important thing to know when you look at these images and when you're interpreting data using this technique is your brain is never off. There's no off switch. Even when you're asleep, you're not, it's not off. And so what we can really only measure is relative amounts of activity with this signal. What it's relative to matters a lot. So, for instance, if I show you a picture of George Bush um, relative to just having you sit there with your eyes closed, I'm going to see activity all over your brain. It doesn't tell me anything specific because you just have visual information and there's faces, there's all sorts of things. So the baseline is very important in determining anything about what the specific ba- behavior is that this signal is related to. Phelps is excited about where political neuroscience research can lead, but she's also reluctant to believe that we can draw any hard conclusions just yet. The question I want to address tonight is, has brain science informed political decisions? Certainly there's some information about the brain and politics, but what about the choices that you make? Has anyone really linked brain science to the choices that you make? So I'm going to focus on research using this technique, fMRI, because it is the main technique that's used to study the human brain today. And I'm going to tell you, there's only three papers published on this. I'm sure there are a lot more in the works that will be coming out soon. And after this election, I'm sure we'll see an explosion. I'm sure there's probably lots of people doing studies right now that will be published later. But so far today, 
Only three papers have been published using this technique to look at anything related to politics in the brain. One paper looked at what they called implicit attitudes towards Democrat and Republican politicians, why they looked at bold responses. So I'll just tell you how they measured this. They had faces of different politicians. They had Democrats and Republicans. They had a task called the implicit association test. So what they did was they had subjects push one button as quickly as possible. If it was a word that meant something good and a uh, politician who was a Democrat, and another button as quickly as possible it was a word that meant something bad and a politician who was a Republican. And then they switched the pairings. Right? And so if your attitude is more likely going to align good with a Democrat and bad with Republicans, you'll be faster than if you had to push one button that had Republican and good and Democrat and bad. And that's essentially how they measure your implicit attitude. They compared Democrats and Republicans while they looked at implicit attitudes, making these judgments in the MRI scanner. The second study looked at what they call motivated reasoning. So how is it you take information and process it based on your political ideology? So they gave subjects these statements about Bush or Kerry or somebody neutral like Walter Cronkite. They had them read a statement. They had them read contradictory information and then exculpatory information. So I'll just read you an example from that paper. So for George Bush, the initial statement was, first of all, this is a quote from George Bush in 2000. First of all, Ken Lay is a supporter of mine. I love the man. I got to know Ken Lay years ago, and he has given generously to my campaign. When I'm president, I plan to run the government like a CEO, runs a country. Ken Lay and Enron are a model of how it, I'll do it. Um, the contradictory information is Mr. Bush now avoids any mention of Ken Lay and is critical of Enron when asked. And the exculpatory information is people who know the president report that he feels betrayed by Ken Lay and was genuinely shocked to find Enron's leadership had been corrupt. So they looked at how supporters of Kerry or Bush responded to this contradictory information differently in terms of their brain responses. The last study looked at essentially how individuals who are Democrats or Republican responded to pictures of the candidates in the last election, Bush, Kerry, um, and Nader, and then later on had subjects rate them for their emotional valence. So what exactly were the results of these three very different studies? So here is, this is this first study I told you about where they looked at attitudes. Um, here they look when you're looking at an a attitude congruent face versus incongruent. That's what you see in blue. You, there's all these different parts of the brain where you see more activity. Again, you're always comparing two conditions. They list them here. The, um, the, the attitude congruent face versus a control. You see that in yellow and the overlap is in green. And you see a whole range of brain regions that are more or less active in these different conditions. I'm not going to go into the details. I don't think they're important. I'll make one big point about the details later. Here's this study. So now we have this contradictory information about your own party candidate versus Walter Conkright. You get these two brain regions, this region called the posterior cingulate and this anterior cingulate ventral medial prefrontal cortex. This region goes away when it's the other party candidate, this ventral medial prefrontal cortex. That's the main finding that they have. The last one... You're, when you're looking at somebody from your own party versus another party, again, you see all these different regions in the brain that are active. Here they give you a long list, and, and that was, you know, the, the main findings were presented here. Some of them were linked to emotional responses. So that's, that's essentially everything that's been published using this technique on politics in the brain. So what can we conclude from this? Does brain activation response vary by political attitudes and affiliation? Well, yes, we saw differences. Is that surprising? No. 
again, you know, as David made the point, anything you're going to measure in behavior, you know there's a difference in behavior, you're going to have to see it in the brain. I'm not quite sure where else you might expect to see it in the body, but chances are it's got to be in the brain. So this is not the least bit surprising that if we have differences in behavior, we're going to see something different in the brain. A range of different brain regions show differential responding as a function of political affiliation. What you didn't, I didn't go into the details because it really wasn't worth it, but one of the things that, if you actually looked at those three papers, one of the things you'll see is that there's almost no overlap in the brain regions they report, almost none. So in other words, nothing consistent emerged from those three studies at all about the differences in political, between Democrats and Republicans. And there's a number of good reasons for this. They use different tasks, and they had different baseline measures. And so they're looking at people doing different things. They're comparing them to different other types of brain activation. So different patterns are emerging. So can any of this research tell us more? Phelps doesn't really think so, and she has one hard example backing her case. I'm going to um, actually talk about another study, a study that wasn't published in a peer-reviewed journal, but was actually published in an op-ed piece in the New York Times. Only one person laughed, and he works at the Wall Street Journal. Um, So I've never actually tried to publish my research in the op-ed section of the New York Times. Maybe I should. Um, But this was published November 11, 2007, and it it was called This This Is Your Brain on Politics. And it was written by a number of people, only one of whom, Marco Iacoboni, has um, any, any publication record really of note in brain imaging research. These other folks, and this is actually all of them, are part of a neuromarketing research firm called FKF Applied Research. And what they did was they actually they, they showed pictures of all the candidates of the primaries to individuals, and they looked at brain activation, and they came up with a number of conclusions about the different candidates. So I'm going to walk through. These are their conclusions, and these are their words. And these are pictures I took from the New York Times webpage. So they, they have, obviously, Democrats and Republicans um, and independents and that voters have a sense of peril and promise in both parties. Now, they do this because they saw high activity in a region called the amygdala, what they say is linked to anxiety, and I'll get back to that, and a reason that's involved in disgust, another reason that they say is involved in reward, and so that's how they made this conclusion. They say that emotions are mixed about Hillary Clinton. They said people who rated Hillary Clinton as more unfavorable showed more activity in this region, anterior cingulate, which David talked about, although this is not normally a region you'd think would be so closely tied to emotion. Um... They said that, that, they're, they're more, uh, that Hillary Clinton and Rudy Giuliani are on the opposite sides of the gender divide. They didn't actually say why, but there were just sort of more brain responses overall when women viewed Hillary than men and the opposite for Giuliani. They said the gender gap may be closing, and they say this because male swing voters showed more activity in this region here called the medial prefrontal cortex when viewing Democrats rather than Republicans. And they say normally swing voters wouldn't feel so warm, and somehow this is related to warmth or something. They say that Mitt Romney shows potential. Um, they say this because Mitt Romney, when they showed pictures of Mitt Romney, they showed activity in the amygdala, which they say is anxiety, and yet when they showed a little speech of Mitt Romney, they had less activity in the amygdala. They said that uh, in Rudy Giuliani versus this is Fred Thompson, Fred Thompson has more empathy. They said John Edwards has a promise and a problem. Now, of course, this was before anybody knew about the affair, but they say this because they, they saw more activity in the insular cortex, to John Edwards, and this is all relative to rest, and this is a region that you see sometimes in studies that are discussed. And then finally, Barack Obama and John McCain have work to do. Um, Now, of course, this was long before we knew who the nominees were going to be, 
but of all of the candidates, these guys had the least amount of brain activity overall when, when they were viewed. Now, I should say, there was a letter written in response to this op-ed piece, The Politics in the Brain, and it was written, signed by a number of cognitive neuroscientists, and they say, you know, which, as cognitive neuroscientists, we are very excited about the potential use of brain imaging techniques to better understand the psychology of political decisions, but we are distressed by the publication of research in the press that has not undergone peer review and that uses flawed reasoning and draw unfounded conclusions about topics as important as, politi- as presidential elections. And I was one of the signers of this letter, and so I will just go through kind of what I thought the problem was with this type of research and the kinds of things that I think we can avoid when we really want to start to seriously think about looking at the brain for political decisions and, and trying to say something about political decisions. And I put this up here because you guys, I'm assuming, are going to be consumers of this science, and I hope you would be educated consumers of this science. So what is this flawed reasoning? The main thing that you need to know when you read this type of research is that for most behaviors, and certainly all the complex social behaviors that we're talking about when we're talking about political decisions, there's not a one-to-one correspondence between brain regions and behavior. I can't look at one brain region and tell you exactly what your behavior is. Except for things like perhaps early visual cortex, areas like the sensory perception, where we really know a lot about what that brain region does. It's not the case that there's no correspondence, but for the complex social behaviors we know about, we aren't there yet. So we can look at the brain and actually tell you what the behavior is. So I'll just give you a few examples of where this reasoning might go wrong. So here's the Mitt Romney showing potential. We see the amygdala. They say it's anxiety. I'm, the amygdala is the area of the brain I probably study the most, and we see amygdala responses to all sorts of things, including things that you're very excited about, happy arousal, certainly not exclusively anxiety. They said Fred Thompson shows a lot of empathy areas. The areas that they indicate aren't really the, cited in most studies of empathy, but one area that is cited in most studies of empathy is the one that they link to disgust. This area is also linked to disgust, that John Edwards has. Again, now it's probably disgust. Then it might have been empathy. Who knows? And I've never actually heard anybody until this op-ed piece say that more brain activity overall when you're just comparing two different tasks means anything. So what's the problem here? It's a problem that we is getting talked about quite a bit as brain science like this gets more and more popular. And it's it's talked about a lot in, in neuroscience in general. It's a problem of reverse inference. It's a problem of inferring a behavior from a pattern of brain activation. And what's the problem with this? Well... One of the problems, as I already mentioned, there's not a one-to-one correspondence from brain regions to behavior. There aren't very many brain regions. There are some, but there aren't very many brain regions where I can clearly look at a brain pattern of activity and without any indication about the task or the behavior or the, the behavior assessed, tell you what that means. And how we parse complex behavior may not be neatly organized, you know, in our language, may not be neatly organized in the brain. As I already mentioned, the patterns of brain activity varies widely by the tasks used and the contrast selected. So as I already mentioned, the brains are never off. And in those three studies I presented to you earlier, all of them looked at differences between Republicans and Democrats. None of them showed patterns of brain activation that looked anything like the other because they all use different tasks. They all use different types of comparisons. When we see a pattern of brain activity, you know, we do know something about different regions of the brain. We can use that to generate hypotheses. But, those, but, the, but we can't make strong statements about what those patterns mean. We do that all the time. So if you read any of these papers, they say we see the activ- activity here. We didn't expect it. We didn't have a theory about it. But maybe it means this. But that's now your hypothesis for your next experiment. And so then you can follow up with what we call forward inference studies. 
So now, once we say, let's say we see something like amygdala in response to somebody like Mitt Romney, if I want to have a hypothesis about anxiety, then I can find ways to measure anxiety more explicitly. I can come up with a theory about where and how and, and, and what other areas I might see related to it. I can make sure I isolate that behavior experimentally and then do a study that's very hypothesis-driven that actually has something where I can link the behavior and link the task in a direct way to brain function. So how will you vote on November 4th? Maybe you know, and maybe you're still not sure. Maybe you'll look at your cubicle on Monday morning in a whole new light. Regardless, I hope your brain is fired up for the ballot. For Science in the City, I'm Alana Rankin. listening. Do you love Science in the City podcasts? Then you should support them and become a member of the New York Academy of Sciences. You can do that by going online and clicking on join now at scienceandthecity.org. Did you know that you can subscribe to our podcast series on iTunes and get our newest podcast downloaded automatically every week to your iTunes library? Search Science and the City in your iTunes search bar. If you have questions or comments about our show, we would love it if you would give us feedback. You can send us an email at scienceandthecity at nyas.org, or you can leave us a voicemail at 212-298-8654. If you want to know more about science in New York City, check out our website, scienceandthecity.org. See you next week.